0: All right, we are here. Welcome, everybody. This is the end of the month Q&A, which means I'm here to answer your questions. Some came in ahead of time. I also want to address the questions and issues that you have. and I'll do my best to respond. If I don't, uh, it's because the question is too good. Also, I don't want to waste your time. So if you have specific issues you want to look at, there will be timestamps eventually below. So if you're watching on YouTube, uh, down in the description below, there'll be a timestamp for every individual question that you have, so you can skip ahead and you don't have to waste your time listening to answers to questions you don't really care about. So hopefully that can help save you a little bit of time. But thanks again for being here. My name is Ryan Pauly. The goal of this show is to get you to think deeply about Christianity, to defend it well, and faithfully live it out. And so trying to take questions on Christianity and apologetics and culture and values and and different worldviews, and so to again, try to help you think deeply about these things because I think they're worth thinking about. And so before we jump into some questions and tell you kind of how to submit some questions, um, and today's kind of a big day. And again, if you don't want to hear this, timestamps below, you can skip. But today's a big day. Today is the sixth anniversary of my podcast, which this audio does go to podcast. If you're not aware of that, maybe, hey, you're listening on podcast. Thank you, podcast listeners. Man, it's been six years since I started um, the Ryan Poly podcast. If you want to check it out and watch there. And uh, man, it's just crazy uh, because when I first started, okay, here's a brief little background story for those who have not heard this before. Um, I was in graduate school at Biola University studying Christian apologetics. And I took a class from J. Warner Wallace on the evidence for God. And at the end of the class, I remember him saying something to the effect of, hey, get out and do something. Don't just sit on this knowledge. Don't just learn all this stuff about God's existence and apologetics and defense of the faith and then do nothing with it. Like get out and do stuff, write blogs, make videos, record podcasts. And at that time I had been writing blogs for about a year. And so uh, I'd started a website, coffeehousequestions.com. I was writing blogs there actually because also of Jay Warner Wallace's encouragement in a blog post that he had written encouraging Christians to get out and start spreading information, start getting truth out into culture. And so I went up to him after the class. I said, look, I I don't know how to do this. I I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And he goes, oh, it's easy. You'll figure it out. And this was about January or February, late January, maybe early February of 2016. I said, okay, let's figure out what I'm going to do. And so I started doing some research and I think I spent about $10 uh, buying a, uh, actually I didn't even buy a microphone that time. I used my iPhone headphones at that time and uh, bought like a $5 app to mix some sound and and just started recording it <laughs> the other day you can find all this on soundcloud if you want just go ryan Polly podcast on soundcloud but the other day i went back and listened uh to part of the first couple podcasts i ever produced. and well let's just say um I'm glad in the last six years I've learned a few things, <laughs> but hey, everyone's got to start somewhere. And so, look, if you are watching this, if you are, uh, if you're someone who just is is grabbing a lot of this information, I'm glad that it is helping you. I'm I'm hoping it is helping you grow in your faith and deepen your understanding of Christianity and able to to really enhance your relationship with God. But again, my encouragement to you, just as the encouragement that was given to me is get out there and use it, share it, talk to people, defend the faith, live it well, and get into conversations because look, there are a lot of lies in our culture. There's a lot of false beliefs in our culture. And we as Christians need to get out there and challenge false ideas present persuasive case for Christianity and help people see the truth of Christianity. So that is why I do this channel. I've been, and so, you know, obviously a lot has changed uh, over the years. Again, six years ago, started that podcast. uh, And what is today? The 25th. So February 25, 2016. Uh, Here I am six years later, I've recorded, uh, let's see how many different shows. Let me see here really quick. Oh, let me pull up to the top. 237 different podcasts over the last six years. I think the average is out, I checked earlier, like around 37 or so per year. So not perfectly every week, um, but a lot of shows over the years. I've, re- I've interviewed 63 different scholars and authors, many of them more than once. And so there's probably over a hundred different interviews uh, that I have done with just brilliant people trying to, again, to introduce you to a lot of ministries and people and books and ideas that people have. And so that is just my goal. And and I love doing it. It is just a lot of fun and I'm excited to keep doing it. And again, if you aren't aware, I was accepted to go back to Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, and get my doctorate of ministry in engaging mind and culture. And it really is a degree that, that, that goes deeper into what I do and, and, and understanding the worldviews that are affecting culture, engaging those worldviews with thoughtful Christianity and apologetics. It starts to look at all of the ethical theories that are, that are framing the way that people live and act, and then taking a good ethical approach and applying it to all of the cultural issues on sexuality and abortion and, and justice and race and everything like that. And then ultimately uh, focusing on leadership, spiritual formation, and evangelism to equip the church to get out and engage the culture, engaging people's minds to then engage the culture. So that's what my doctorate is going to be. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to starting that. It begins in January. So I got a little less than a year to continue to figure out how to be a dad and to live that life before going back to school for that degree and but again just so excited to continue to dig deeper into it and then everything that I learned uh, just sharing with you and trying to encourage you in your walk with God as well. And so um, it's been a, a fun, exciting journey and so hey it's a celebration day and so I'm happy to be here with you on this day. Also a quick little update before we jump into the questions is um, man, I've been doing a lot of speaking events uh, lately. I've spoken the last three weeks at junior high, actually at a college ministry, and then two junior high youth groups the last three Wednesdays in a row. It's been a ton of fun. And again, I'm just looking for more events. I'm trying to book out my summer. There's a lot of stuff in the works. And so if you are a church, a camp, a, a school, uh, someone who is interested in having me come out to your event, there's a lot of information you can find at my website. All that information is below. And there's even a link to, uh, if you wanna click on speaking events. And hey, I'm trying to book more events because I need to raise money to pay for school. <laughs> I got to make my first tuition payment at the end of this year. And so I'm trying to book some more events so I can get that first tuition payment done. So with that, we're going to jump into the questions again. uh, Multiple ways you can send it in. You can send it in ahead of time um, through social media. And, um, and and through Twitter, through uh, Instagram, through Facebook, you can contact me, send me your questions and I'll add them to the list to address the next time I go live. You can put them in the live chat as I see a few are here already. Um, some of these I might have some thoughts on. We're gonna get to the Lambs book, I think in, in the end, um, but we, uh, I'll do my best to address your questions there. Uh, or again, you can call into the show. Uh, not many people take me up on this one, but this is a call-in show if you want. You can text your name And your question to 714-989-6927. That is a Google voice number. I'll get the text. I'll be able to send you a link to then join the show and add your, um, your information. And Slam, if you want me to come to Indiana, invite me have a church or whatever it is that you're connected with, invite me there. I'd love to head out to Indiana. Uh, This summer, I'm, man, we, uh, my wife and I are looking at the possibility of going, we'll be in Utah on a Maven trip. Uh, We're going to hopefully Colorado and also to Florida. And so we'll be making our rounds this summer, speaking at different uh, youth retreats and camps and whatnot. And so we're really looking forward to that. So uh, with that, I have a few questions that came in. Actually, a lot of questions. The junior high ministry sent me Uh, about 20 or so questions that they had. And so I'm going to be addressing some of those here as well as other questions that came in on Instagram, as well as your live questions that come in. So we're going to jump in uh, to the first one, and it is this. What are the most compelling reasons for God's existence? Now, man, this question is a really tough, difficult question because everyone is going to find something different compelling. Everyone's going to find a different reason compelling. And so, what I love is to really have a wide arsenal, so to speak, to have a lot of different arguments and evidences for God uh, to present. Because, look, some people are going to find the argument uh, from the beginning of the universe, the cosmological argument, compelling. Uh, Others don't. Some see the fine tuning argument very compelling. Others don't. Some see the moral argument compelling. Others don't. And so, um, this is a difficult thing to answer because what is compelling is going to change from person to person. And so I can tell you what has been compelling for me. And a lot of these I've discussed on the show before and going in more in depth and just to give you a little bit of heads up in a very, hopefully the next we'll see uh, if I'm ready for it. But the next live stream that I do by myself is actually going to be responding to a video where I talk about some reasons for God's existence. And I actually just present like 10 off the top of my head. And I said, okay, now, if people are going to reject God's existence, are they rejecting it because they actually have defeaters to these 10 arguments? Or is it because they actually, um, they uh, they they just don't want it to be true, right? They have other reasons. They have volitional reasons or they have... Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, emotional reasons against it, and I said, "Look, if there are defeaters to these ten different arguments, I, I would love to hear it." And so, an atheist, actually, uh, I assume a skeptic, um, uh, submitted defeaters, or at least his thoughts on all ten of those arguments. And so, in the next video, I want to then give a response to that, and and to work through. Um, the arguments that he has given, or at least the the the, the defeaters, the, the the reasons against what I presented uh, in that video, and so that is going to be a soon upcoming video. And so um, this is going to be changed, like I said, from person to person. And um, and so what are we going to talk about? Well, for me, uh, it comes down to a few. I think the argument from consciousness is a an extremely compelling reason for God's existence. I think that when you look at a, a secular, naturalistic worldview, you have a lot of naturalists that, that say that if naturalism is true, then often things like determinism are true, that, that you do not have free will, that, that all of our actions are determined by previous uh, actions, that everything is just chemicals in our brain. And, and so everything that we experience is a chemical reaction. Uh, you have Sam Harris saying things like, you have no free will. Uh, if he, he has a video with, um, um, oh, who's the, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, where he says, look, if you, if you look at your two hands and you say, I'm going to choose which one you want to lift. And he goes, oh, I think I'm going to raise my right hand. And you raise your right hand. He goes, you didn't pick that. He goes, you had previous brain states. It caused you to pick that. And so everything is determined Action. Based on brain states uh, before, you have people like Daniel Dennett saying consciousness is an illusion. It's your brain playing tricks on you. There's a big think video on YouTube where he says, you know, it's like magic, uh, but it's not like magic, magic. It's, it's stage magic. It's, it's just a bunch of tricks. And so uh, to me, man, this is, this is very interesting when um, this is what is often presented as what is true if naturalism is true. And so I think that there are not good reasons. There are not compelling reasons to explain how we have this thing called consciousness, how consciousness arises from simply this material state. And the fact that we are conscious beings, the fact that we can know things, the fact that we have logic and reasoning capabilities points to a logical, reasonable God who gave us these capabilities. And so I think that the existence of the soul is a good argument Um by God. And uh, the fact that we have a soul, and I think there are good arguments for the soul, and I have videos on this with J.P. Moreland and others, um, where you you look at this. And again, there are, uh, as you know, the arguments are flawed, as, as Slammiron puts right there in the live chat, um, people will use neuroscience and different things to try to disprove the existence of the soul. And so I also have an interview on neuroscience in the soul by Dr. Mreti Guta, uh, where he came on and we talked about how do how does neuroscience relate to or disprove the soul. And he, we talked about all these objections and so and that, look at these evidences that are presented are not, um, they're not, they don't go through. Uh, they don't actually defeat the arguments for the existence of the soul that we do see. And so um, anyways, I, I you, you can look at these and you can look at more uh, of these different art um, evidences That are often presented. And so I think this is, to me, an extremely compelling reason for God's existence. Let me just go over one more really quickly. I think the argument for morality, I think, is huge. I I, I cover this in my class today, actually, as we talked about objective and subjective truth. And and I asked my students this question. I asked my students today, can we claim religious knowledge in the same way that we claim scientific and historical knowledge? Can we claim religious knowledge in the same way that we claim scientific and historical knowledge? And I had a student say, well, yeah, I, I think so. If if we can present evidence and reasons to support our religious truth claim, just like you can present evidence and reasons to support your scientific or historical truth claim, then you can say that you know it just like you know a scientific truth. You can know a religious truth. Now I pushed back a little bit and I said, but can you present similar evidence? as these other truth claims. And you can't in one sense, right? Because God is not a physical being that we can study using the scientific method. And so we're not going to have maybe the same type of evidence. But here's where you have to push back a little bit uh, in this idea of, is scientific evidence the only compelling, reasonable evidence? And I don't think it is. I think that we have good reasons to say that you can know something based on personal experience, right? A very simple explanation is I know what I dreamt last night. I don't have scientific evidence for it. I can't prove it to you, but I know that's what I dreamt because I experienced it personally. And I think there's another point. Uh, One of my students said, you know, I think it it," actually, the same student said, well, yeah, there are reasons, but they may not be as compelling (laughs) because they're maybe not as obvious. And again, I think that's another really good insight that was shared because, look, there's tons of different kinds of evidence that support different statements that we make. But just because I am saying something that is not compelling to you does not mean, number one, it has not been compelling to me. But number two, it doesn't mean that I can't know it. Like we can know stuff and my ability to prove it to you or convince you does not change my ability to know. We can know something is true, even if I can't prove it to you. And I think that is an important point to make. So when it comes to moral knowledge, uh, we can claim moral knowledge and we can understand moral knowledge based on our awareness and our sense experiences. And again, I think a, a simple reason for this, and there's so much more that could be talked about, but I have tons of questions. Some are coming in the live chat and I want to keep moving forward. But some of this is, is simply this is, how can you prove, for example, that, that the C on my hat is red? And a simple way is, well, look at it. Just look at it. Now, if you're listening online or podcast or radio, C on my hat uh, is red. I'm wearing a Colorado Avalanche hat. And it's like, well, what if someone comes along and says, "Well, I think, it's, I think it's yellow?" It's like, "But it's not. Well, prove it to me. How do you prove that this is red? Look at it. Look. Like, we don't need to do a science experiment to figure out the light refraction and all that kind of stuff to, to, to know what color is on my head. It's, it's look at it. And if someone is going to go, no, I think it's yellow. We have three possible options. Either one, they are taught their colors wrong. <laughs> and they were always taught that this color is yellow and no one has ever corrected them on this. And they honestly believe that it is yellow. That's an option. Number two, it's possibly that they're colorblind. But again, we recognize there's, there's something wrong. You, you should see it red, but there's something wrong with you. So you're seeing it as yellow. It's possible maybe that this person is colorblind. The last thing is maybe they're just being difficult. <laughs> they know it's red, but for whatever reason, they're just giving you a hard time. Go, no, it's yellow. I think it's yellow. And they know it's not yellow. They're just giving you a hard time. That is an option. And so um, how do you prove? Well, look at it. It's not. I think that we can do something similar when it comes to morality. Yeah, you can't find murder. You can't find uh, abuse or whatever in uh, a molecule of it and, and put it in a test tube and test to see whether it is real or not, to whether it is good or not, good or bad. But you can look at it. Look at someone abusing their child look at it and say, that's a good thing. I don't think that we can. And if someone goes, yeah, I think that's good. I'm watching this this father abuse his his child and and I think that's okay. I think the same thing, The one, somehow they're taught something horribly wrong. There's something broken, like they're colorblind. There's some moral brokenness where they think that's okay. Or three, they're just being difficult. We can point at moral actions and go, look at it. And we can know that this is wrong. And so if you have this objective moral standard, you have to have an objective moral lawgiver. Why is that wrong? Can we explain how we know that murder is wrong? Often people say, well, because it hurts someone. But that's just another action of, a that's another example of a moral action. But why is hurting people wrong? A student, I spoke at a chapel yesterday and a student responded and said, well, because they're human beings and making them sad. And you don't want to make them sad. I said, well, why? Why is making people sad wrong? But I also think that's not always wrong to make people sad. We give people sad news all the time, but that is the morally right thing to do. Like doctors tell you bad news that makes you sad, but if they lied to you and said, you're healthy when you're not, would that be a good doctor? I don't think so. All right, And so we have this moral awareness as scripture talks about even and I think that this is best explained by the existence of God. And so these are two compelling reasons. We go way more in, but I'm already going way over time uh, that we could talk about. And so, um, man, I think that this may be helpful. I think that this is, is good and, and there's more that we can discuss. You can put them in the live chat if you want to. Uh, but these are some compelling reasons for God's existence. Um, all right, moving along, uh, coming to the live chat. Stephen, thank you for sending this in. How do I talk to atheists about Jesus when they argue so much about atheism? Well, it's, it's, it's about asking good questions. Uh, again, kind of challenging their worldviews, I think, a great place to start. And so, um, you know, maybe saying, hey, what do you think about Jesus? I start to get their opinions on Jesus. What, what do you think about him? Uh, what do you think uh, he was like? Do you, do you, you know, accept any of the historical evidence? Was he a real person? Uh, do you hold to mythicism? Um, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the Christian claims about Jesus as rising from the dead? And, and kind of start to get their opinion. Because what they grant is going to change kind of the conversation that you have. Now, they may grant Jesus was a historical figure, uh, that he was a real person, but clearly they're not going to admit that Jesus is God because they're an atheist. They don't believe that God exists. And so often you have to take a step back, right? And so if you're going to try to show Jesus is God, you have to be able to show that God does exist. And so that's part of what we just discussed there: some compelling arguments and reasons for God's existence. And so... I think uh, in the approach that I try to teach and try to help people see, there, there's a blend, so to speak, between um, challenging and trying to poke holes in someone's worldview. Uh, again, you're not going to go buy a new car unless you are convinced that your car is, is not good or your car is broken or there's a need, right? Like I, I'm, I'm, There's no car salesman that is going to get me to buy a new car right now. My car is perfectly fine. I like it. It's running. There's no issues. It does exactly what I need it to do. You are not going to be a successful car car salesman if you're going to try to get me to buy a new car. But if they're going to try, what are they going to try to do? Here's why this one is better. Here's why this one has a feature that you need. Here's why this one is. And and it's trying to show you there's something that you need (laughs) because what you have has some holes or is missing something. And so I think that we can ask good questions um, of the atheists. Okay, if you're an atheist, do you hold to naturalism? Do you hold to materialism? Do you believe the material world is all that there is? Okay, if so, do you discount things like free will or do you believe that we have a free will? Okay, you do believe we have free will. Okay, Uh, how do you get free will if there is no soul? Do you believe in a soul? Do you believe in some sort of immaterial aspect of us? Okay, no, we're only material beings. Okay, so just as a material being, just having a material brain and everything coming from that, um, how, how do you get free will from that? Okay, so what do you believe about morality? Okay, so you believe that all morality is subjective. All morality is relative. Okay, so what do you do with things like murder? What do you to do with things like what's happening around the world right now? What do you do? I just got the question yesterday from a student that someone is trying to use the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine as evidence against the existence of God. If, if God is good and perfect, why is he allowing this evil to take place? What do you believe about evil? Right, in, in my talks on why God allows evil— uh, I think that evil is evidence for God, that in uh, a world in which God does not exist, as Richard Dawkins says, you have no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And so if we recognize actions as actually wrong, how do you get that in your worldview of, that you hold in these atheistic beliefs that you hold too? And so uh, I think it starts with having th- these conversations, asking these sort of questions, and um, and then continuing on. And um, then kind of asking them more questions, not only what they believe and how their atheism can explain uh, the world around them, uh, but also kind of coming back to um, asking them, what do they believe about Jesus? Why do they discount these things? And so hopefully that kind of helps because it's hard. It's just like it's such a broad topic, but asking them good questions to figure out where they're at kind of will give you a starting point of what are the issues that you need to address, right? If they believe that Jesus is a real person, uh, but you know, think that the resurrection is just completely made up, then maybe you start talking about the evidence for the resurrection. And so, you know, okay, what about this historical evidence that scholars Grant. What do you think about these things? And so, um, man, there's a lot of different ways that you can go with this, but Stephen, I love the uh, enthusiasm, the desire to talk to atheists about Jesus. And so, uh, man, I, I just hope that you continue to find opportunities and that courage to, to ask those questions and to get into those conversations. So thanks a lot uh, for sending in your question. Uh, moving along here. Um, let's see. New Testament theologists, Yes. Go Abs. Woohoo! Number one in the NHL. So pumped about that. Um, All right, let me pull up this question that came in on Instagram. And this is what I was trying to mess with. And I realized I forgot to take it off my phone. Oh, that just covered my face. Let's pull it off here to the side. Um, Okay, hopefully you guys can see that. I'll make it a little bit bigger here. Oh, there we go off to the side. Um, Okay, this is a long question uh, to kind of work through. Uh, It says, hi, I have a question about God's justice and mercy. How can God be just if he just forgives every sin a person has done, especially if it results in someone else's pain. Okay, so, so starting off, um, God doesn't just forgive it, right? We have to recognize, and we can't uh, divorce this question from a conversation about the cross, right? God is not just sitting back and like, okay, yeah, I forgive you, no big deal, right? We have to recognize that the heart of Christianity is that Jesus paid the price. It was Jesus Christ's death on the cross, him taking on the punishment of our sins. Um, that is why, excuse me, we are able to be forgiven. And so uh, he isn't just sitting back um, forgiving, uh, it is Jesus taking the punishment for us. And so either we are going to be pu- punished uh, for the sins of that we have committed, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, or um, Jesus takes on the punishment. It's one of those two options. Uh, there is no middle ground there. And so he says, uh, continuing on, just like the person h- uh, hanging next to Jesus was forgiven, he still gets punished. Yeah. And so we have to also recognize a couple of things is that there is an earthly punishment, right? Just because Jesus forgives sins does not mean that we step back and say, okay, well then, murderer, go free because Jesus has forgiven you. We are called to in scripture to 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 punish evil and to protect good. Uh, this is one of the roles of the government. And so we can say, look, I forgive you, and God forgives you. But you still need to pay for what you've done as far as, as this earthly consequence. And so, yes, the thief on the cross, it wasn't as like as soon as Jesus forgave him, they took him off the cross. It's like, OK, you're forgiven. No more sense in crucifying you. No, he got crucified. There's an earthly punishment for what he did. But there is not the eternal punishment because he was forgiven by Jesus. And so he was hanging on the cross. Jesus did forgive him. Uh, and Jesus took the punishment of his sins so that he could have everlasting life with Christ. And that's why Christ says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. It says, the Bible says, continuing on in the question, the Bible says there will be final judgment. What is that about if every Christian was forgiven and viewed as no sin? So the final judgment is where every person stands before God. And is judged, and we'll get here in a little bit because there's a question that came in on, on where do babies go. Uh, maybe I can actually just bring that up here really quick. Let's let's jump ahead in this. Oh no, I'm out of order. So let's see. Let me pull this up here in Revelation 20. Let me come over to my Bible here. Boom, there we go. In Revelation 20, verse 12. All right, so here it says, uh, the great white throne of judgment. So Revelation 20, starting verse 11 says, and then I saw a great white throne. And to him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death, and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the final judgment here in in what Revelation chapter 20 is talking about is that all the dead are going to be raised. All the believers and the non-believers are coming before God, and the two books are going to be opened up. There's the book of life. Those who have been forgiven by Jesus, whose names are written into the book of life, and as Jesus says, you know, uh, we, we those will stand before God, and He will say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." You're right. Come on in. And um, and uh, then there is the other book, and this is the book whose names are not written in the book of life. Those who are not been saved, and they are going to be judged according to the deeds that they have done. And so the final judgment is where that final separation time. Uh, where the dead are raised and separated at the end uh, based on their response to Jesus Christ and whether Jesus has paid for their sins or that they have to pay for their sins themselves. And so that is kind of the purpose of the final judgment. Uh, And so, yeah, the believer whose sins have been forgiven um, is not judged in the sense of now you have to pay for the sins, but you stand at judgment and the judge says, you're clean, you're good. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ Well done, good and faithful servant, come on in. And so that is what's going to happen to those who have their sins forgiven at that final judgment. It says, what if a murderer becomes a Christian? The same happens. And this is a really good question because this assumes this idea that if you commit a a sin big enough, then you somehow cannot be saved. There's something too big like murder. This is not the standard of whether we get into heaven or not. This is not simply not the standard. The standard is, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you been accepted into the family of God, adopted as a child of God? And the, the example I think is so helpful in this is, this, think of, of, of Costco or a members-only country club, right? If you get into Costco or you go to Costco, can I get in? They go, well, are you a member? No. Well, then you can't come in. If you want to come in, you got to become a member. It's like, well, I don't want to become a member. Well, then you can't come in. And you go, but I'm a really good person. It's like, that's wonderful, but you can't come in. It's like, but I, I helped the old lady in the parking lot load the groceries into her car. And it's like, well, thank you. That was very generous. But you need to be a member if you want to come in. And then it's like, but I haven't gone to jail. I haven't murdered anybody. Okay, but you need to be a member. And so we recognize that that the, the standard of whether you're going to get into Costco or members only country club is whether you're a member or not. It's not based on what you have done, good or bad. And so, yeah, the murderer who becomes a Christian has been saved by Jesus. His sins have been forgiven. Jesus has taken on the, the penalty of that sin. And so, yes, that murderer has the ability to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, stand before God, and be told, well done, good and faithful servant. Because all people can have their sins forgiven. There is no sin too great that God cannot forgive. And uh, continuing on, he still owes a life or more. Again, Jesus is paying that. That's what we understand in this life's consequences. So he says, the ultimate question I have is, does God's forgiveness erase everything and no punishment applies? Or is it just that one's soul would be forgiven, but his flesh would be punished? I don't want to go that far, right? Your soul is forgiven, your flesh is punished, because then like your, your fleshy body is then be in hell or something, and then your soul gets to go to heaven. But it says our bodies, right? We are raised bodily, and our bodies are restored and renewed. And so, yes, everything is forgiven. But again, it's not saying that there is no punishment, because Jesus took on the punishment. And he says, what about those who got away from punishment? Will the final judgment address that? And I absolutely say yes. And this was a huge point, actually. This is a huge point for one of my students um, who, who, after hearing all the arguments in evidence, talk about, talk about persuasive or, or um, what was it? Uh, reasonable uh, arguments for God's existence or compelling reasons to believe in God. One of the I taught years ago, the compelling reason for this student was that true justice is accomplished in Christianity. That there is not going to be anyone who gets away with evil, right? And we recognize that's one of the big complaints that people have about this life is that, man, how? Why do bad things happen to good people? In the same way, why do good things happen to bad people? Why is it that there are people who are so good and faithful and love God and serve Him and have bad things happen at the same time? Why are these evil, wicked people often? Why do they prosper? And look, if Christianity's not true, if there is no afterlife there is no fairness. There is no final justice. You can murder, get away with it and live the rest of your life happy and die, and you will never face the consequences, right? It is Christianity. It is the, the, the biblical story of, of, of heaven and hell and the death of Jesus that says, look, you're not going to get away with it. Ultimately, you will be judged. This life is not the only life that we have. And so absolutely, final judgment does address the person who did wrong and was never caught in this life. True justice, the thing that we all desire, is actually possible and does happen in Christianity. It's not in something like an atheistic, naturalistic worldview. So again, I think that's another compelling reason for some people to go, wow, I desire justice. And the Christian worldview actually makes sense of this justice. So last question here in, in what came in in this long Instagram question. It says, okay, so if so, should Christians be afraid of the final judgment? And the answer is no. We have no reason to be afraid. For those who are in Christ, we have life in his name. And we will stand before him again and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so there is not a need to be fearful for that final judgment because there's over and over and over in scripture it talks about the confidence that we can have in our salvation that we can know that we are saved that jesus holds us in his hand and those that the father has given him he will not let go of and so i think we do not have to be afraid or fearful that maybe we live this life and and are a christian and get the wrong news a judgment and all of a sudden oh no you are have to pay for your sins um they weren't covered that is not a fear that we should have you know and it reminds me of another question that was asked me at a junior high Q&A that I did 2 weeks ago and a student said you know what if what about the person who who lives a good life and and and, and wants to know god and wants to follow god and 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 desires that relationship with god and 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 reads their bible and goes to church and prays and and does all that and then dies and finds out they're going to hell <laughs> what about that person and my response was I don't think that that person exists, right? Everything that you have described is the example or is the description of a regenerate believer, someone who trusts in Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. That's not going to happen. There's not going to be the person who desires the relationship. Once the relationship is in the relationship, is doing the things that the relationship includes of, of, of reading scripture and being with God and praying and communing with him, and then all of a sudden is not saved. I don't think that that person is there. And therefore we don't have to be fearful of that judgment. Um, All right, let's continue on. Awesome questions coming in, in the live chat. Thanks for sending these in. Uh, New Testament theologist. Let's see uh, how we can do this one. Um, Oh no, my thing just covered that. That's really annoying. Okay, let me put that over there. Given the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus, what theological importance do we place in the fact that the woman witnesses, especially for the present day? So I think what you're talking about here is um, how important is it that the fact that the women were the ones who witnessed or the first to see the risen Jesus and how important is that for today? It sounds like what you're saying. Um, I don't, I maybe I misunderstand this question. i saw, sorry if I am, and you can comment there uh, below if I am. Um, but... Um, the importance is how it adds credibility to the historicity of the resurrection. So the argument that you often hear of the women eyewitnesses uh, to this is is that women in that time did not have the the credibility in culture uh, to be counted as uh, trustworthy eyewitnesses. And so the gospel writers would not have made this up. If they're trying to make up a story and try to make it credible and believable to the hearers, they're not going to say, oh, by the way, women were the ones to find the tomb empty. Uh, that's not going to hold the weight that they would want it to if they're just making it up. And so the fact that the disciples are, are saying it was women who discovered this uh, is a good reason to believe they're not simply just making it up because this is not something that someone would simply just make up. And so I think it holds uh, important weight for today in recognizing the historical context back then and how then that plays into the credibility of the story. Um, and so I, I think that it is just one piece of, of many to say, look, there's good reason to believe the tomb was empty. All right. And that's, again, that's just kind of pointing to the empty tomb, uh, as well as as the eyewitness uh, um, uh, experiences of the risen Jesus and those going around and saying, look, we saw, we experienced the risen Jesus. Uh, and so it's just one piece of the puzzle, I think, that fits into that. And so, um, again, I think... It's it's the question is, okay, the, the resurrection is a historical reality, and so we should maybe expect to find uh, evidences, just like in other pieces of historical details, we should find evidence pointing to the fact that this is historical. If you're telling a story of something that happened in history and you have no evidence, no eyewitnesses, no you know artifacts left behind, then maybe there's a good reason to question whether the story is actually real and true. And so, hey, if we have people saying, look, they saw the empty tomb and they saw the risen Jesus and they're women, and, and that's not something that would be easily made up, I think that there is good reason to say, look, this this is um, helpful or this is uh, a good piece of evidence that we can look at. Um, All righty. And you are a fans, fan, super... Jelly of the Abs, yeah, big Kadri fan. Oh man, Kadri's gonna leave the Abs, I think soon. I don't think my bet is that Sackic is not gonna pay Kadri the big money that he's gonna want, and he is gonna be gone at the end of the season. So we'll see, uh, there. Um All right, back to Stephen. Uh, How do we tell people about Jesus when they have another religion without offending them? Okay, this is really important. I actually just talked to my students about this one today. We're in a chapter right now in my doctrine class of isn't claiming truth intolerant? And this is what we're kind of talking about. And so um, the the issue is here. here is this. I think the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. But as many people often say, we should not make it more offensive than it already is. It is possible that what you have to say to someone, it may offend them, may make them upset, may make them sad because there is bad news. And I was speaking again at a chapel yesterday on this idea of bias. And one of the questions I asked the students is, do you want someone to tell you the truth even if it's hard to hear? Do you want someone to tell you the truth even when it's hard to hear? And when we really stop and think about this, the, the answer is yes, right? If you go to the doctor, you want the doctor to give you the truth, even though it's not fun hearing it. I, I have been having back problems and I went to the physical therapist. And The physical therapist started off by doing an evaluation. It was just like, oh my goodness, your core is weak. This is bad. This is bad. Oh my goodness, you have this problem. And like I'm like, ah, man, this, <laughs> this is not fun. But then the physical therapist says, hey, but here's what we can do. Do these stretches, do these exercises. We're going to build strength and hopefully this problem is going away, right? There's the bad news and there's the good news. And I'm not probably going to do the stretches and all this if I don't think that there's actually something wrong with me. But to go in there to, to the doctor and the doctor say, hey, everything is fine. You're perfectly healthy. Go on home and enjoy your life is not a good doctor. And so it is possible that what we are going to say is offensive. But what we man, but what I'm trying to help my students see that as I teach this concept and these ideas this week is, is that everyone, everyone holds that truth is exclusive. Everyone believes that others are wrong and that they are right. Even the person that says all views are right. Everyone is right. Okay. So is my view that you're wrong, right? (laughs) They're going to say no, because You're being exclusive, right? So even the inclusivist that's trying to say everyone is right is going to say that I'm wrong. So everyone is going to exclude someone. And so hopefully we can come and say, look, yeah, you have your religion and I think that you're wrong. But at the same time, you think I'm wrong. (laughs) So rather than getting offended by the fact that someone is saying you're wrong, let's have a conversation about the evidence. Let's have a conversation about what you have to claim. And so like, look, you believe this. Right, So example, if you're telling people about Jesus, I'm thinking another religion like Islam, right? You you have in the Quran, uh, it says Jesus did not die, that he only appeared to have died. Okay. So you, uh, you don't believe that Jesus is God. He's not part of the Trinity and you believe that he did not die on the cross. That's all right. Okay. That is right. Okay. So do you want to talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection that we've been discussing here? Okay. Is there good reason to believe that actually Jesus did die on the cross? And so, um, that's you know, and so it's like, look, if we have good reason to believe that Jesus died, then that would mean that the Quran is wrong. And so what do we do there? And so um uh this is hopefully where we, we we try to get to the point of look, just because you believe someone is wrong is not offensive. And just because you tell them that they're wrong is not offensive, there are right and wrong ways to tell someone that they are wrong. And hopefully we can um try to get to this point where we can say, look, Yes, you think I'm wrong. I think you're wrong. Like, let's have this conversation. Uh, But we're going to respect each other in that. And hopefully in that, not find ourselves uh, as offensive. But sometimes there's more groundwork that needs to be laid in order to have those types of conversations. Um, So hopefully that helps uh, as we continue working through these questions. all right, let me uh, come through the live chat. Man, there's a lot of action going on here. I don't know if there's other questions. I don't think so. Let's uh, go back to what my students uh, sent in. Um, all right, here's a big one. A uh, big, big question. What does the Bible communicate about sexuality? Uh, man, this, this is, uh, uh, we got to look at a few different verses here uh, because I think this is so, so important. Um, the first place I want to go with you guys is to matthew chapter 19 right i think this is a good place because a claim is often made jesus never said anything about uh sexuality homosexuality sex before marriage these kind of things um and and for one that's, that's not really true um and so we have to look at it in this way uh, tim burnett from red pen logic did a, did a great video uh, responding to this this argument that jesus never said anything about uh, abortion or, or homosexuality and whatnot Um, But we have to recognize is that the Bible is God's word. And so we we should not just look at the red letters and the words of Jesus uh, about other places. But here in Matthew chapter 19, right, Jesus is being asked about divorce, starting in verse three. And it says, you know, is it lawful for, uh, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answers, it says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. and The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so here we have Jesus, um, you know, and, and I think an important question to ask when it comes to this verse in Matthew chapter 19 is, why did Jesus include what he included in verse four? Right? Why did he say, therefore, have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Like, that's kind of irrelevant when, it, when talking about divorce. All he needs is what he says in verse 5. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why? What he includes in verse 4. Right. And again, I think what he is happening here is that Jesus goes on and he's quoting back to Genesis, right? If you're not aware, this is coming from Genesis. And he's not only agreeing with the creation of male and female in Genesis, which is another question that's in my list, a long list that students sent in on, you know, our Adam and Eve historical people. And I think that this is what Jesus is, is hinting here and suggesting that they are. But also, he's saying, look, God is doing this, the Old Testament is reliable. And also here is the, the, the framework here is the, the kind of the, the, the proper way in which things happen. We also see later on in Ephesians chapter five, Paul quotes back to Genesis as well. And he says, look, marriage is like Christ and the church where he, he, he discusses and he, and he goes into, um, in Ephesians chapter five, and we'll pull that one up here. Let me Ephesians, so you can see it, not just me. Right, in Ephesians chapter five, at the very end of this chapter, right, he says, therefore, verse 31, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Christ as the groom and the church as his bride is referenced uh, all the way back. And Paul's going, again, going back to the Genesis account. And it says, not only did God create the male and female, as Jesus talks about, but then also a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. And so we have Jesus and Paul both going back to the creation account saying, look, this is the created norm, right? This is the prototype that God is putting in place. And one thing I asked my students when we covered this in, in a class is like, can you imagine like God saying this to Adam? Like, all right, Adam, you know, uh, you know I created male and female and therefore what man has joined together uh, or the man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two should become uh, one flesh. And, um, and it's like, why are you telling that to Adam? He doesn't, he's like, wait, I'm supposed to leave my father and mother? Who's, I don't have a father and mother. But what God is doing here is establishing a prototype of how the family should function and, and what marriage looks like. And so Jesus is saying, look, because this is a created thing and God is bringing these people together, this is what marriage looks like. This is the, the union that is happening. They become one flesh, this one flesh sexual union, one flesh in all things in the whole area of their life. This has implications on sexuality. And I think the application can look like, you know, uh, Jesus never talked about, you know, don't hit people over the head with guns. Jesus never talked about, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, other issues as well. Let's just put it, leave it at that. Cheating on tests. But he talked about honesty. He talked about love your neighbor as yourself. And so th- even if he did not directly address a very specific issue, That issue is encompassed in what he discusses here of what marriage and sexuality should look like in the God's created, designed order. And so we can look back and say, okay, this is what he he is talking about. And Jesus is looking at here in Matthew chapter 19, creating this framework for what to think about. Now, what we also see, and I think is important is I, let me pull the Bible up here again. And I think I saw the live chat chat here of, of, um, and I think this again is, is, is hugely pointing to the gendered aspect of marriage as well, uh, of, of leaving your father and mother of a man holding fast to his wife of of Christ in the church, being the groom and the bride. I think that there's a lot of gender at play here in this, but we also see in Romans chapter one, what does the Bible have to say about sexuality? And it says, um, Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, again, some argue with this and say, oh, no, 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 this is natural to the person. But that's not what the scripture says. It's saying that they gave up natural relations for those contrary to nature, not what was natural to them, um, but what is contrary to nature. Right? Again, going back to the designed order, you're designed to function in a certain way. Biology points to this men and women are made to fit together this is this is basic biology that's when men and women come together it's the completion of the reproductive system. This is the natural thing that is designed to happen and when we go against that, we're going against design and I, and again, I, I like to use the example with my students of um, a, a, of, a cell phone, right. Of, of how am I supposed to use this phone? Well, you have to first understand what was it designed to do, right? If I'm going to know what a good use of this phone is, I have to know what it was designed to do. If it was designed to make calls and send texts and do all the stuff that we do on it, then that using it for that purpose is a good use. But if I'm going to use it as a rock to skip rocks, or I'm going to use it as a hammer to bash in a nail, or I'm going to use it as a cup holder for my hot coffee, um, I'm going to cause damage. It was not designed to do those things. And so those would be wrong uses for it. And so I think Paul is making this argument here again. We have been designed for a certain purpose. God has built us into us, this natural function of how we are supposed to live, going back again to Genesis. Before society, this idea of, no, it's all a social construction. Marriage is a social construction. Sexuality is a social construction. Gender is a social construction. No, all of these verses, Jesus. Paul in Ephesians 5, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul in Romans chapter 1, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, all pointing back to the created order, that this is something that God designed and built in. Now, one objection uh, to Romans chapter 1, as you see here on the screen, is this idea of this is talking about um, maybe acts of, of men uh, doing, doing rape and temple prostitution, this kind of stuff. But again, I think an important Aspect of this verse to point out is in verse twenty-seven, where it says, "Men likewise gave up natural relations for women, and were consumed with passion for one another." Right. So this is not just one man domineering or dominating another, as as some try to suggest, but it is they are consumed with passion for one another. The passion is going both ways. And again, this is saying men, not a man with a boy. And so that's another argument that's often presented: as is male and boy. And so we can look at other aspects of this, but I think the biblical account is very clear, um, in this. And now let me actually, let me pull up one more verse. Cause, uh, this question is also going to come up as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians this is another popular one. Chapter six. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter six. Um, again, um, Did you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And so, (coughs) um, again, recognizing here a couple things. Now, again, you, you will hear online. Oh, well, the context of this, right, is writing to the Corinthian church. And in Roman culture, there was all this abuse and there was inappropriate relationships and there are men dominating boys and all this kind of stuff. And so you will, you will hear it and say, well, here's what's happening in the culture. Therefore, this is the context that Paul is speaking into. But the question is this, is that actually the context? Is there anything in this passage that suggests Paul has those actions in mind when writing this? And I don't think so. Again, there's very specific language that could have been used to talk about men with boys, or there's very specific language that could be used to talk about temple prostitution and those sort of things. But it clearly just says men who practice homosexuality. But then it also says adulterers. It also says sexually immoral, right? And so again, it's not singling out this one action. And so what does the Bible have to say about uh, sexuality? I think that uh, I love the way that Christopher Yuan puts it best and what he calls holy sexuality. And holy sexuality is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And then, as the Bible defines marriage as one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. And that is what the Bible communicates about sexuality. Now we can jump into that and say, okay, but what about, you know, premarital sex? Where does the Bible have to talk about premarital sex? And um, let me figure out where's, oh no, where did it go? I had one verse to pull up here and now I can't find it. Oh no. There we go. Um, Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison, as though imprisoned with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God. Will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Notice again, I think that there's there's a separation here uh, talking about the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Right. And so if, if it's you know only talking about, you know, outside of marriage, well, then what is that sexual morality? Right. And the sexual immorality talked about here is a general term referring to anyone who engages in sexual contact outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Right. And then adulterous relationships, right? Anyone who is unfaithful to a spouse. And so we can look at this as one example um, of what the Bible has to say about premarital sex and and this idea of the 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 covenant relationship being this special thing. And Hebrew talking about uh, Hebrews here talking about uh, hold it in honor, let it be undefiled. And guys, there's just practical benefits of this. And and one of the things that I recently covered with my high school class is, is this idea of look. The studies show that the more someone is sexually promiscuous before getting married, the more likely they are going to be unfaithful in marriage. Now, That's not a guarantee. It's not saying if you have sex before you get married, you're going to cheat or whatever, but it's more likely. And, and often, I think one of the big reasons is, is stemming from this idea of comparison. That you get into marriage and, and and you start to compare, and it's well, man, so and so was better, or I, you know, and there's all of a sudden this comparison game happens where you're not fully satisfied. And how beautiful is it when there is not this sexual promiscuity before marriage, and you can go into marriage and say, "You are the best I've ever had. You are the most beautiful I've ever seen because you haven't had anything else." There's a beauty in that. In that undefiled marriage where this is just pure beauty that you have before you now lastly uh here in this question we can look and there's tons of other verses we could go to but back to first corinthians uh six uh verse 16 i have here uh where it says there in the middle um do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for as it is written the two will become one flesh Right, and so again, this idea that what what Scripture teaches is that when you have sex with someone, you are joined to that person, right? And this again is what God has joined together, this one flesh union. Let man not separate. And so this idea of of this should happen once. This is what Scripture is calling us to. And so, um, you are joining yourself with someone that then you are not promising to. And and I love actually how Sean McDowell puts this. And, and you can find my interview with him, and and we kind of go over this in the interview on on his book. Um, chasing love, say, but he's making an argument for, uh, against premarital sex, uh, but without using scripture. And, and his argument is, uh, it, it's wrong to have sex before marriage because it's wrong to lie. And he goes through this argument of, of that we can lie with our words, but we can also lie with our body. A- and our bodies, um, w- when we do stuff, it, it, it says something, right? You can work through it. What does a high five say? What does a handshake communicate? What does a thumbs up communicate? What does a wink communicate, right? And all these things we recognize have, uh, they communicate something, right? So imagine doing a business deal with someone and at the end of the deal, they say, hey, do we have a deal? And you don't say anything, but all you do is put out your hand and you shake their hand and walk away. What are you communicating to them? You're communicating we have a deal. Now, what if I then go break that deal, go back on it and I do the opposite? You come to me and say, hey, we had a deal. And I said, I didn't say anything. No, you, you committed. You, you, you promised. You told me that you'd you do this. It's like, I, didn't, I didn't lie. I didn't say anything. But you shook my hand, right? It's communicating something, right? So we recognize that we can communicate with our bodies, but we also communicate with our words. And so then you ask the question, what does a kiss on the cheek communicate? What does a hug communicate? A bro hug, a side hug, a front hug? Well, you know, there's different types. What does a kiss on the forehead communicate? What about a kiss on the lips? What about a French kiss? And lastly, what does sex communicate? Right. And so I work through this with my students and Sean goes over in the interview as well. And I'll put a little thing up here, a little card will pop up. Uh, I'm referencing a lot of videos, but I'm running out of time and I have so many more questions. So we're going to have to save these questions for another one. But um, this idea of what does it communicate? Well, it communicates exclusivity, right? Where if you have sex with someone and then go have sex with someone else and they're like, wait, you can't do that. It's like, well, I never promised. I never told you that I wouldn't. But we slept together, right? It's the same question, but, but we 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 had sex. Like you recognize there's this exclusivity that comes with it, that you shouldn't just go off with other people. It also communicates permanence in the creation of children. And there's other things. It communicates love, it communicates all these sort of things, it's commitment. And so what you're doing is, and he goes over this, is, is this talking about is, is you're, you're promising these things. You're communicating exclusivity, commitment, love, and all these sort of things, but then you're not actually doing it. And how I kind of related it to my students was like, look, if, if there's a business contract and they said, well, but what if you're what if you promising it in the future? Like you're not ready yet, but you'll, you'll be ready in a couple of years, right? Because you, you want to get married. You're just not ready to get married yet. And I said, well, it's the same thing if I'm going to do a business contract with someone. You don't sign the contract and shake hands if you're not ready to fulfill the obligations of the contract. If the contract says you need to do X, Y, and Z, but it's like, well, but I'm not ready yet. I'll be ready in two years. Well, then sign the contract in two years, shake the hand in two years, not when you're not ready. And so to promise all these things uh, before um, you're ready to do it, uh, I think can be an argument that you are lying. You're telling them something with your body that you're not committing to. Um, and so that is a lie. And so it is wrong to lie. Therefore, this is wrong. And so um, uh, so I think uh, this is an argument that can be used. Now with that, let me quickly check if there's any other comments here in the live chat because we just hit an hour and so I'm going to wrap up. Um, one more coming here from Justin. Justin, thanks for sending this in. Uh, this will be the last question, guys, and then we'll have to wrap up our time. How do, am I supposed to know when I'm making a decision if it is right or when it honors God over myself? One thing I think is important to recognize in this, and I feel like when it comes to choosing a spouse, when it comes to choosing a lot of different things, um, is, is recognizing there's not maybe just one right decision, right? It's like, where should I go to college, right? That's a question I always deal with the students. It's like, which college is the right one? And it's like, man, get this pressure off that says, I have to pick the one right college, the one right person, or else I can mess everything up. And imagine if that's the truth, right? There's like the, the, the one that you're supposed to have. And, and John was supposed to marry Sally, but instead John messed up and married Susan. Oh, well, now Susan can't marry Sam. Well, now, and all of a sudden, it's just a domino effect that just turns into disaster. And so I think a, a helpful thing is when you look at the will of God in Scripture, there's there's three kind of different categories, I think, that can help us make decisions. Number one is that we look at God's sovereign will of, of what is God's call on you in your life as a believer. I'm assuming you're a believer, right? Wanting to honor God above yourself. God wants you to, to be faithful. God wants you to, to share the gospel, to go make disciples of all nations. And so you you ask the question, is this decision that I'm going to make— be part of God's sovereign will, his ultimate will of me doing what he has called me to do as a Christian. And if it helps you to do that, then you can say, this is a good decision. You can kind of check that box. If what you're doing is taking you away from the calling on your life as a believer, then you should not make that decision. So if that college, that person kind of checks that box. Okay. Then you move on to step number two. What about God's moral will? Is this decision morally right or wrong? Is this some immoral thing that you're wanting to choose? Then don't do it. But if it's morally good, you can check that box. Okay, hey, not only does it allow me to live out as a faithful follower of God, but it's also morally good. Third box, do you want to do it? This is not where your personal opinion comes in. Is it something you even want to do? If you don't, then don't do it. But I think that if you can check all three boxes... That if this decision that is before me is honoring to God and allowing me to do what he has called me to do as a believer, as an ambassador of Christ, if it is a morally good thing and I also want to do it, then I then make that decision. And so I think that kind of if you look at it like a Venn diagram, right, where all three bubbles overlap, any person or college or school or decision that falls in that center area where all three of those things overlap. I think can be a good decision and say it's right. And I think we look at this, right? With, with um, you know, when the apostles were choosing a new disciple after the, the resurrection of Jesus, right? They found two qualified people, right? And then they just draw straws, right? They cast lots. It's like, okay, well, we, we, we've we done all the work. Both of these people make sense. Now it just becomes a flip of the coin, right? And I've heard one Christian say, the same thing. Like you you have two colleges and and they check every box and they're equal in every way, flip a coin, right? And it's going to be a good decision. And so again, I think this can help you say, look, I want to honor God. Again, it's not just, what do I want to do? That, that, that third box and just say, all right, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do. But you're honoring God by saying, look, God, I want to do something that, that, that follows what you've called me to do and being a moral person and being uh, your disciple and having you as Lord of my life. And I think that that is a way that we can make that decision. So with that, I have another 50, no, maybe not 50. 12 questions that came in but uh, we will not be able to get to. Um, but I just want to thank you guys. Uh, it's always more fun answering your questions that you send in, in the live chat. So thank you for sending those in. I appreciate it. Um, again, one of the next upcoming videos that's going to be coming out is my response to the skeptical kind of objections to every one of my points and the 10 different arguments I made for the truth of Christianity and the existence of God. I'm going to be discussing all of those 10 points. So if you want to make sure you catch that video, make sure you subscribe. Uh, and uh, catch that one that's going to come out here probably soon next week. There's other interviews that are in the works and um, another Q&A at the end of next month, but maybe I'll have to do one sooner because I got a ton more questions that came in. So maybe we'll have a sooner Q&A if you also want to see that as well. And as always, if you, um, hey, thanks, Lab. I try to give so many analogies. I feel like that's the best way that students work and, and they understand. And so I try to find an analogy that's relevant for everything. And and so uh, I'm glad it, it, it that you enjoy that. <laughs> Sometimes I tell, I think, too many stories and too many analogies. But anyways, man, guys, there are a ton of other videos on the channel that you can check out as well if you just found me on this one and you found this interesting. There are a lot of others that help you understand and think deeply about Christianity, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. Again, if you want to support, you can do so in many ways. Pray for me. Invite me to your event. Um, help me pay for that college next year and maybe make a financial contribution if you want to support in that way. If you found something valuable here and you want to give back, there are many different ways to do that. So all the information you can find is down below. You can check out my website for more information as well. All the videos that are going to pop up over here, suggestions that may be helpful to you as well. And as always, guys, I love being here. Continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Thanks for making this a fun end of the month Q&A and a final, uh, I guess, celebration, six-year anniversary of the podcast. Uh, I'm excited to be here all the times and, man, the hours and hours I've spent with you all, some of you less, some of you a lot more have been with me for years. I appreciate it. And, uh, man, let's just keep plugging away because this is fun stuff. All right, everybody, I'm going to go hang out with my son and my wife. See you all later. Have a great weekend. Bye. Day to follow Your love will guide my way